Hey besties, welcome back to another episode of Sunshine and Rainbows podcast, a space where we chat about moments when life isn't. I'm your host, Amanda, and I am so passionate about peeling back that veil our society has constructed around perfectionism online. When starting my own personal platform on Instagram, I realized that I was getting caught in the inauthentic hustle, and it was severely affecting my mental health, mostly because I was comparing my behind the scenes to someone else's highlight reel. Throughout my life, I've come to own that my setbacks were actually just set ups for something better. I found a way to step into my true potential, and the goal is to amplify other voices who have done the same so that someone out there feels seen and that much less alone. I cannot wait to get into this important conversation with our next guest. So let's get started. Wow, the first episode of 2022. Y'all, I cannot even be Again, to tell you how this podcast has changed my life, my heart, my mind, honestly, all of it. Not a single conversation started, mind being changed, or episode would be possible without you. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, tuning in every week, and sharing with your friends and family. I am blown away. When I started this podcast last year, I had no idea what this could become. We have formed a community full of inspired listeners who are empathetic and interested in learning about other people than what's in their own circle. Again, none of this would be possible without you. And I am just so excited to see how Sunshine and Rainbows podcast continues to transform this next year. I do just want to hit you with some statistics. Again, I'm trying to stay humble in all of this, but we have to celebrate our accomplishments, okay? So since April of 2021, when this podcast started, we have had over 7,000 downloads. We have over 700 subscribers and they're ranging. People are listening from the United States, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, India, United Arab Emirates, Germany, Ireland, Italy, and Japan. Again, I am absolutely blown away. Some of our highest downloaded and listened to episodes range from me telling my story at the very beginning to talking about toxic work environments and even an episode with my little sister chronicling her weight loss journey. And wow, guys, thank you. Thank you for being here. I guess it's only up from here, right? Let's commit to starting more conversations, looking outside our own circles, finding empathy in every corner of the world, and continuing to peel back that veil that life is not a highlight reel. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. And on to our next guest. Sage Felges is a professional ballerina, artist, and advocate for mental health in the ballet community. Sage has danced her whole life and professionally now for four years. She recently joined Confluence Ballet Company in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is a new company that is dedicated and working hard to change the toxic, 
and non-inclusive nature of the ballet world. Plus, they're supporting mental health awareness for all ballet dancers. This episode is one that means so much to me, not only because I personally know Sage, but know how hard she's worked to get to where she is as a professional ballerina. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you, and hopefully it makes a difference in the ballet world just by getting this conversation started. Okay, everyone, I am so excited to introduce our next guest to you. She is someone that I have known for a very long time. We actually pretty much grew up together. Um, Sage, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you for having me. Yes. So Sage and I met through our homeschool group and we both were in the same, well, we, we were both dancers and we were in a lot of the same shows in ballet and Sage took it a little bit further and is actually a legitimate ballerina now. I try. <laughs> I try to be a legitimate ballerina. <laughs> you are. I mean, in my mind, you are. It's incredible just to see how, you know, you started in small town Missouri and look at you now. Yeah, yeah it's it's been a journey for sure. <laughs> Yes. So I would love it, Sage, if you would just kind of take us back from the start. Tell us about you and how you got to where you are now. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I've been dancing for a long time. So I I technically started dancing when I was three years old. I remember my parents took me to see Nutcracker. It's a very classic story of a kid going to see Nutcracker and being like, Mom, I want to do that. So that's how I, you know, got my dream of dancing and being on stage and everything. I did a lot of musical theater and I was in a very like tap and jazz school when I started because I was in small town Missouri. There really yep. wasn't a lot of ballet options except for downtown um, or at least an hour drive away. So, you know, like when you start, your parents are like, well, like I'm not going to you know, commit to crazy driving if she doesn't love it. You know, who knows? Like mm-hmm. I was three, you know, so we started in a very small one-room studio, tap jazz, and very minimal ballet. Uh, the teachers were really great where they taught us like the the positions and like really basic foundation. But then from there, when I got older, nobody else in my class was interested in ballet. So, mm. you know, there's 30 kids in a room and everyone's like, no, skip ballet. Let's go on to jazz. And there's a little sage like, no, I want to do it. <laughs> no. So usually we would do like 15 minutes of ballet once a week. Because I was in one of those classes that was tap jazz ballet all in one. Mm. So I had very minimal training and I would try and find as many outlets from there because I always bugged my mom, you know, that take me wherever I want to go do more ballet. I want to see ballet. I want to audition. So we found a um, very small little production of The Nutcracker that was in the town Farmington, way far out from us. And that was semi how I met you besides yeah. schooling because um, yep. I was in that production I didn't go to the school um, that did the production they had open auditions and that was my one little exposure to real ballet uh, every two years um, so that was crazy so I really didn't um, do a lot of ballet growing up and I really transitioned into it when I was about 15 when I started going to the school in Farmington fall time And then from there, I got accepted into the Milwaukee Ballet um, Professional Academy in Wisconsin uh, at 16. And that was when it really kind of took off for me, was just kind of like really committing and 
really diving into what pre-professional training really was. <laughs> and it was a very different ballpark, that's for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, it was um, a little bit of a shell shock for me at 16, I will say. And there was a lot of setbacks because starting at 16 in a pre-professional program is about three or four years too late. So I never want to say too late, but in, mm-hmm. in many people's eyes, that's too late. It's never too late, really, as long as you work hard enough. And mm. then from there, I kept working really hard, did not take no for an answer, faked it till I made it, and <laughs> um, got into a, another conservatory, which was a little bit more advanced for um, like high school graduates uh, in Chicago, Illinois. It was their inaugural season, A&A Ballet. They're now very successful. And um, then from there, I was an apprentice trainee company, a trainee apprentice is what they call it, uh, for a year with Ballet Met, a big company in Columbus, Ohio, Mm -hmm. and got to perform in many of their company productions, which was very high competition to get picked from the trainees. And then from there, I landed my first paid professional job with Ballet Quad Cities, and I was there for three years. And that really taught me a lot of the difference, even, again, from being a trainee to being a company member and how much more that you know entails and requires of your just artistic abilities and mental stabilities as well. And then I recently joined Confluence Ballet, a new company in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm really excited about what we're trying to accomplish here. It's a brand new company. It's our inaugural season. And we're really trying to make a very innovative company of ballet that is still incredibly classical and holds the traditions of ballet, but um, is a little bit more progressive and innovative and inclusive and um, very supportive of mental health for dancers, which in a more traditional old set company is sometimes overlooked, which we can dive into. Yes. Wow. Yeah, it's a journey. (laughs) Incredible. Just hearing you talk about all of that. And obviously I've been following along on social media and, you know, our moms still chit chat here and there and just Mm -hmm. being filled in on everything that you've accomplished. And for those that aren't familiar with ballet terms, will you break down, like you said, the difference of being an apprentice, being a company member and why Mm -hmm. those are very significant just to even accomplish being a company member in the ballet world. Right. Yeah. So ballet is often, it's very hard to get into an actual company. Um, There are positions that are non-paid spots that are called trainees or apprentices, um, depending on the title at which company gives it. But a trainee is usually somebody who is a high school graduate who is not quite polished enough to be considered a professional or to be paid um, in the eyes of the company. They're like, oh, you got a lot of potential. You're very talented. You pick up choreography really fast. You're clearly, you know, in on this, but you need a little bit more um, tailoring and tweaking here and there in your technique before you're ready for like a soloist role or, you know, a huge ballet production. So we're going to give you a trainee or apprentice spot uh, that is non-paid and usually you don't have to pay 
you're on scholarship per se. Okay. Um, where you're in the company, but you're only, you know, we're not guaranteed to perform either. That's the other really hard part about it is mm-hmm. that you're expected to learn everything. You learn several spots in the core. So in a ballet, there's the corps de ballet, which is the main body of the ballet female group and male group that do all the big background dancing that you see or the big group numbers that you see on the in the main productions. So you will understudy all of those. And then if you're good enough, they will put you on stage. Um, and so that's what I did when I was a trainee. You get picked out of all the trainees to be the one to get to be on stage. And there was six of us out of about 35 dancers. Mm. They got picked to be in any of the company productions. Um, you're usually in a trainee program for about two years, year at the least. I was in one for a year. Um, then from there, you do all the crazy company auditions that are very similar to what you see on TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very cattle call, like nobody knows your name. You get a number. You get like, you know, 15 seconds to do your thing. Um, and you do as many as you can. And then you potentially get picked to be in a quarter ballet usually first, and then there's um, the main body of the ballet company of the principal dancers and the soloist dancers. They get to do the main roles that you see. So our company and several other dance companies are um, non-titled for their company members. So there's apprentices, and then there's what we call company artists. So I am a company artist at my company, and the last company I was a part of was also a non-titled company. So it is more free reign of if the director sees you and you're good, you get picked for the soloist role. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter um, how long you've been in the company, per se. Of course, okay. you know, there are still you know social norms that happen if you've been somewhere for a long time. But it um, in more traditional companies if you are in the core and you know some you say something like oh I'd like to be the soloist like that would never happen because it's so built on tradition of title and seniority that it isn't even considered so the company I'm a part of now is um more open for you know if you're you're doing the work and putting the work in you'll get the recognition Oh, that's amazing. And something that you mentioned on too, the rich history and traditions of Mm -hmm. ballet. I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, they go see a production maybe every year for the Nutcracker or Swan Lake when it comes touring. That's like your average person's exposure to ballet, the ballet world. But there's so much that goes into it and there's actually different versions of ballet that you can study different Mm -hmm. techniques and each technique has their own hierarchy and the way things are done. Yes. And so will you tell us what technique that you've studied under? Has it changed over the years? Yeah. So yeah, ballet is really rooted in tradition and you always start with your plies at the bar. Um, I mean, I've had, when I'm teaching, I've had parents say, you know, like, oh, she's bored. She always does her plies at the bar first. She's been doing this for years. I'm like, well, I still do that. You know, everybody, it's very rooted in tradition and routine of that the ballet class is structured in a way to warm your body up for actual dancing. So you follow a regimen. Um, and there are different styles. So there's the, 
Vaganova style, which is Russian schooling. Um, there's the ABT style, which is like the American school. Um, there's I'm blanking because there's so many. There are really um, a lot. But I was trained under like more Vaganova, I would say. Uh, ANA was very Russian school based, but I've also had some Cuban teachers, which have taught in some Cuban influence. And I also got to study a year of Balanchine influence. Oh, training. wow. Yeah, which really changed my dancing because Balanchine is very fast and mm-hmm. um, uses a very different muscle group, crazy enough, even though it's still ballet. Right. And um, it requires like really quick fire muscles. So you can't just necessarily always do that right out of the park because any athlete or anyone who goes to the gym knows like it's a very different muscle group that you need to train for that so yeah getting a year of that was um very exciting and really changed how I danced well and for anyone listening that doesn't know why I went oh wow (laughs) (laughs) that is one of the greats like when you talk the ballet world that name is one that every single person knows. Oh, yes. Balanchine uh, was the um, – he was the founder of ABT, mm-hmm. and he has a Balanchine trust, and you cannot do his choreography without getting uh, permission from the Balanchine trust, and then you have to have somebody from the trust come and set it on you, which I got to do. Um, I got to do – uh, Concerto Barocco and Learn Serenade set by Nilas Martins from New York City Ballet. So yeah, it was very cool. What an honor. Wow. Wow, Sage, that's incredible. So over the years, you've gone through all of this training. I'm sure not only mentally, but physically, it's taken a toll on yes. your body. So how are you dealing with with that and the inevitable burnout that I'm sure comes along with it. Yeah, there has been a lot of setbacks, like I mentioned, uh, throughout my training, a lot of people saying no, a lot of people Mm. saying you're never going to be able to do this, it's too late for you, you don't have the right body type, you don't have the right training, you know, your muscles aren't structured the right way because of X, Y, and Z, and um on top of that, a lot of it comes down to the person in the front of the room, what they like, what they want to see, and it's not always you. And so it really has taken a toll on my mental health over, you know, certain periods of my life. And it it really did I really did have to do a lot of, you know, self reflection to figure out how to combat that and how to not let it uh kind of jade my love of ballet because I really had to realize that it's not ballet, you know, it's not ballet's fault. It's mm. it's other people that are um, kind of tainting it a little bit. And I had to really focus on figuring out how to filter what was somebody's subjective opinion and what was somebody's constructive criticism for me and how to honestly ignore people when it was subjective because Something that really changed my life was when I realized that, you know, some people's favorite fruit is a peach. And peaches are amazing and unique and delicious. And some people really don't like peaches. (laughs) Yeah. But that does not mean that a peach is not good and that somebody else isn't going to be like, oh, my gosh, like that is my absolute favorite fruit in the entire world. 
I will have it anytime, any day. And some people are like, I can't even smell them. So like, it's not always about you. It's not always that like, doesn't, no doesn't always mean no somewhere else. So it's, it was really about really just putting my head down and working hard and letting things kind of roll off my back a little bit in the sense of like, it's, it's not about me. Mm. So, wow. It was hard. I love that. (laughs) It was hard. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that because I feel like for anyone listening, whether you're in the ballet world or not, that Mm -hmm. can be applied to literally anyone. And I feel like in today's age, we we take things so personally sometimes. And especially me being an empath, I wear my heart on my sleeve and I I think everything is personal. But Mm -hmm. I personally have to remind myself that people don't wake up and decide that they're going to say something that hurts my feelings, you know? And like you were saying, it might just be artistic differences and not anything actually wrong with you and learning to sift through all of that information coming at you. Yeah, exactly. I, I've even had teachers that will say, you know, you need to fix this. And then I won't. <laughs> and I'll just do my thing. And I'll try and do it more confidently. And then they'll come up to me a few days later, or they did, you know, not current teachers, but past teachers would come up to me later and say, Oh, you fixed it. And I'm like, No, I didn't. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just being me. And, yep. I'm, you know, like, it's an aura that you wear, that maybe people perceive as, you know, in like something that they like or whatever, you know, you have to, you have to kind of play the system a little bit and understand when it is you. And really sometimes it's maybe your boss having a bad day and projecting something on you that you didn't even do in the first place. So yes. It's, it's oh a lot of that goodness. in the ballet world. <laughs> I, I believe it. Honestly, I do. Now, with all of that that you mentioned, you did bring up something about your body not being structured a certain way and things like that. Me, not even going remotely close to where you were in your career, just doing ballet in high school, I personally myself struggled with early signs of an eating disorder just because, especially during the Nutcracker during my senior year, having to realize that a male principal dancer would have to lift me and do all of these complicated moves and I needed to be able to, one, be in the physical structure and strong enough to do them, but also have to think about, okay, I'm being lifted. Am I too heavy? Am I going to fit in my costume, even though this is the week after Thanksgiving? How are you navigating all of that throughout the different companies that you've been in? Yeah, so that is definitely a dark shadow in the ballet world, for sure, is body positivity, um, body type. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of people, myself included, I suffered an eating disorder throughout my high school years as well. Um, it, it, there's this sudden misconception in dancers and instructors sometimes that I think people start being like, I have to dance like so-and-so, I have to look like so-and-so I have to, you know, fit this model image. And so often dancers that are the most successful aren't fitting any mold, aren't fitting any image. Um, You know, people like art because it makes them feel something. 
And if you are trying to, you know, put like this mold over top of your art, you, you are art. So if you're trying to put this mold over yourself, it becomes, you know, artificial. It becomes no longer you authentically. And the audience isn't going to, you know, feel anything from that necessarily. And so like, people get so stuck on this image idea of ballet because it really is like modeling and um, uh, being an athlete in one because it's so much of the visual art form that people really do get stuck on, you know, what size you are about it. But some of the most beautiful dancers that have made me cry or made me feel something are not, you know, a certain because they were a certain size or because they were a certain height it was because of the emotion and the feeling they're putting in dancing and i just i've seen a lot of change in the ballet world um i've seen a lot of in my personal uh mentors and colleagues really kind of embracing that idea more that it's not so much about anything other than like the fact that ballet makes you feel something mm-hmm. and you need to do that <laughs> And it's been a really positive change. And then also, of course, you know, it's an athletic form. So you have to be strong. You have to um, eat a certain way. You have to fuel your body because your body is your instrument. So, you know, of course, there is going to be um, physicality that comes into play. It's naive to say there isn't. So when it comes to that, the way I have shifted my mindset is figuring out what works for my body and where my body feels the strongest, my body feels the healthiest. and focusing on that. And I have found that has taken me further than any calorie counting or any, you know, workout diet regimen that I've ever done or, you know, punished myself with before. If I focus on my health and my, um, my abilities, you know, your body, your body takes over from there. So yeah, it's been, it's been a, a bit of a journey and an understanding of those things. And um, remembering that you are an athlete that needs to perform at your highest, but you're also a human, mm-hmm. you're an artist, you are a you know, communicator with your art, like a ballet, dance, art form is something that breaks the boundaries of communication. You know, you're, you're making somebody feel and tell a story through your movement and that's, that's your most important job. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's finding that balance between understanding that you're an athlete and you're a human. And being kind to yourself. <laughs> I love that. Sage, that was so eloquently put. Wow. I'm just going to take a moment <laughs> because what you said is just so powerful. And whew, wow. Now, you had mentioned in the beginning when you were walking us through your career that you have now joined a ballet company that's on their inaugural season. And you mentioned that this company is doing things differently in regards to inclusivity, mental health, and a lot of other things. Will you unpack that a little bit more for us? Yes. So I found this company's mission and I auditioned because as soon as I saw it, I was like, that is what I am all about. It is um, diversity, inclusivity, innovative movement, and altogether you know, experience of art. And um, kind of what I was talking about, the fact that Ballet is supposed to make you feel something. It's mm-hmm. not supposed to be, you know, this tiny little ballerina on a stick, you know, like she's she's supposed to make you feel something. She's supposed to be relatable. She's supposed to be you, you know? So um 
that's what this company is trying to create is a inclusive company that um, we're not, some companies hire certain heights and certain um, like have height requirements for their audition, which is sometimes very discouraging. You look at something and it's like, oh, we don't hire females above five foot three. And it's like, well, Yep. What is that? Yep. <laughs> so, um, you know, we are not a cookie cutter company. We are all different sizes, heights, ages, races. Like we are unique, beautiful artists. And um, we all have very similar mindsets and goals and visions for where ballet needs to head in terms of being more accessible to everyone. I don't think that ballet needs to be this art form that is, you know, considered to be like, oh, only like the elite people go to see the ballet, you know, like, ooh, of yes. course, like, it's a very special event and it's very fun when it's fancy and everything, but it it also should be accessible and um, something for everyone. And that's what we're trying to create with this company that um, has started here. And we're really excited. We got a lot of things on the horizon. Um, our biggest productions we are shooting for 2022. So follow us on social media. It's Confluence Ballet on Instagram. And we have Facebook and we're working on starting up a YouTube and everything. So oh, really man. Yeah, we're, we're really trying to be really innovative. And um, we got some small projects coming up uh, within the next couple months here. So keep an eye on our Facebook for that and our Instagram. But yeah, our, our, we're really excited to we have some big visions for our big productions and in 2022. So um, for sure, follow us on that and you'll find it all. If you follow me on social media, you'll find it all there because I'm very involved with the company and um, one of the, you know, being one of the founding members, it's, it's very passionate for me. Like I'm, I'm, it's like a passion project. So <laughs> I love that. And I will link everything that you plugged there down in the episode notes. So for anyone listening, Perfect. you can find all the links there. Now, again, you keep like dropping these little nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So you mentioned, again, changing the ballet world for the better, being more accessible and inclusive. All I'm seeing in my mind right now is every ballet movie I've ever seen ever where it's the kid who maybe didn't get all the opportunities and then they get the scholarship to go to the ballet school mm -hmm. and all the other kids are like, you don't belong because I grew up in this ballet school. Yeah. And then it turns out that they're what the entire company was missing and they're this diamond in the rough. Uh -huh. And I'm just thinking again, like you're saying, making ballet and these art forms more accessible and inclusive. Think about possibly all of the people even like you could say with you that you didn't grow up having all this training, but you had the talent, the drive, the passion, and you were able to make it. And just think about how many other minds and artists are out there that might not even have those opportunities. Yeah, that's really inspiring to think about. And that's exactly what change I want to see in the ballet world. I, you know, I, I didn't even come from a super, you know, diverse background, but I myself had my setbacks and just thinking about me having more access to ballet as a kid, um, more production access, even just to see it being performed. It was so rare that I even got to see the ballet mm -hmm. in a professional level. Like uh, it was just, I would just love for more kids to have access to seeing the shows and 
being exposed to it to be inspired and think like, oh, I want to do that. But the other thing that is very sad and really worries me about the ballet world and really needs to change fast is how toxic uh, it it is and how um, so many instructors leave so much damage on their mm-hmm. students that they, they end up quitting um, sometimes before they even become professionals. And they have this negative uh, you know, memories of the ballet and they don't want to support it. And I have had so many friends and myself included, I have said this before, where I think about my future children. I think I don't want to put them in ballet. I don't want them to go through what I went through or the, you know, the criticism and the constant um, comparison I used to do with myself with other girls in the room. And mm-hmm. uh, it just, it sometimes leaves people very hurt and very angry and they don't want to be a part of it anymore. And if we continue down that road as a ballet company, um, there will be no ballet company because if there's no audience members to see us dance, we're not going to be able to do what we love to do. And then in turn, if directors keep treating dancers like they have in the past, there will be no dancers. Mm -hmm. And if there's no dancers, there's no dance. And if there's no audience, there's no dance. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you really, we really have to continue to not just like as a, myself, I've started teaching and I've really sat myself down and thought like, I can't just, you know, put on a persona of whatever teacher I grew up with and just say catchphrases that maybe they said to me that because mm-hmm. I think like, oh, that's how I got where I am today. Really, that was not how I got where I am today. Those were actually what I would put in the category of my setbacks. Mm. And then how I got where I am today were the people that did encourage me and myself um, being believing in myself. So. I I don't want to continue this trend where teachers kind of just say what their teacher said to them and it continues down this vicious cycle of um, negative, toxic environments in the classroom. And it really, I really want to be able to say, I want my daughter to do ballet, you know? Mm -hmm. I I love ballet. Like I said earlier in the conversation, I'm not angry at ballet. Yeah. (laughs) Ballet never betrayed me. Ballet's always been there. It was the people in the front of the room that betrayed me. So mm-hmm. uh, the people in the front of the room need to need to change. Mm. Mm. And I think I think that can be said for a lot of things yes. these yes, days. Sir. A lot of careers these days. And even just thinking back to my career working with animals, it's a lot of the same thing as you're yes. joining these companies that were founded in the 60s and 70s. And obviously ballet has been allowed a lot longer than that. Mm -hmm. But there's a certain way things are done. And I went through hell and back to get this job, which means that you need to go through the same thing because I was treated this awful way. So that gives me the right to treat you that way. Right. There's almost this bitterness that Mm -hmm. so many people in professional world have of yeah like you're saying I was treated that way I went through this now you have to too pay your dues type thing and it's it's really sad because I think it kind of it comes from a very low uh damaged place in people's egos mm-hmm. and I I think we all need to you know rise above and heal and recognize that what happened to us should not have happened to us and it also should not happen to the people younger than us in the room that we are now 
you know, you have, you hold so much power as a teacher, as an instructor, as a trainer, whoever you are in your professional world, ballet or not, you hold power Mm -hmm. over that person's life and mental health and futures. And what you say sticks. It really does. Yes. And just at the end of the day, remembering that we are all human. And even though this is something that you love to do, that's your outlet and artistry, at the end of the day, it's still your job. Mm-hmm. And you should be able to have a work-life balance and to be able to leave work at work. And sometimes in many different fields, there's that blending and blurring of those lines where you can't separate real life from your job that you're doing. Yeah. it's a. It can sometimes be a very dark path to go down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, I really appreciate you and everything that you've shared and just giving such an incredible background to this world that, again, I feel like a lot of people don't know about. Um, I would love it if you would give advice to anyone listening, whether they have been in your situation or might be in your situation someday, or maybe have kids that want to grow up and be a ballerina, or even to your younger self, what's some advice that you would like to share? Um, I would say that I think the worst thing you could do for yourself is to sit and compare yourself to somebody else. And kind of what I was talking about earlier, try to put yourself in this mold of what you think the person in the front of the room wants to see. So you're thinking like, oh, well, I'm going to look like so-and-so or I'm going to do my job like so-and-so. Be you. Be authentically, unapologetically you. And I think you will be incredibly pleased and surprised where that takes you in life. I love it. Oh, Sage, thank you so much for your time and just sharing your heart and your whole story with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad I got to tell my story. Yay! And I'm on the roll. Thank you for listening to yet another amazing conversation started here on Sunshine and Rainbows podcast. Each week, I am quite literally blown away by the voices and stories shared here. The goal is to amplify others' experiences in hopes that someone listening out there feels that much less alone. Thank you again to our incredible guests for getting so vulnerable with us about their own personal stories and for helping each of us remember to look at a situation with a new perspective. If you love this episode or any previous one, I hope you'll take a second to share it to a bestie or even tell us on social media. It really does make a difference in helping us get these conversations out there to the world. If you'd like to share your own story with our audience about how you've overcome something in your life or maybe want to start an important conversation that needs to be heard, please send us an email at hello at thatmandagirl.com. Stay colorful and we'll see you next week, besties.